Tell me, if you don't mind, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the words Holy Spirit? Or if you like, what did come to your mind when you walked in a few minutes ago and saw the words up on the screen? Charismatic. The Holy Trinity. Comforter. Faith. Say it one more time, sir. Power. Power, yes, thank you. God. A couple more. Trinity. Okay. Conviction of sin. Okay. Thank you. Now those impressions or thoughts may have come to your mind for various reasons. There may be some past experience involved sometimes. But for the next few months at these early services, one every month, we're going to look at what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit. But we need to start by asking why would we choose to focus on the Holy Spirit? There's lots of things we could talk about. Why talk about the Holy Spirit? Well, here are some words from Jim Packer. He says, The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. Very few seem interested in it. The average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the Holy Spirit does. And he goes on to say, Christians are aware of the difference it would make if, after all, it transpired that there had never been an incarnation or an atonement. They know that then they would be lost, for they would have no saviour. But many Christians have really no idea what difference it would make if there were no Holy Spirit in the world. Whether in that case they or the church would suffer in any way, they just do not know. Now those words were written in 1973. So we might imagine the situation has changed since then. But here's a book that came out 36 years later in 2009. How well you can see that from the back. It's the cover of a book. The title is Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. Why is it tragic to neglect the Holy Spirit? Here's Jim Packer one more time. He says this. Were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel, no faith, no church, no Christianity in the world at all. It's a pretty strong statement. Maybe that sounds a bit over the top. But I think as we look at this over a few sessions, we'll see it's completely true. So yes, it is tragic to neglect the Holy Spirit, but we can go on to say, in one sense, it's understandable. The word spirit implies something that's hard to pin down, hard to get to grips with. Jesus himself compared the Spirit's work to the wind. He said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And Jesus said, it's like that with the Holy Spirit too. 
It's kind of elusive and mysterious. Older versions of the Bible use the word Holy Ghost. That just adds to the sense of the Holy Spirit being vague and maybe even a little bit eerie. And all of that is very different from the impression we have of Jesus, I think. The New Testament tells us the Son of God took on real human flesh. He could be seen, he could be heard, he could be touched. So it's no wonder we have an easier time thinking about Jesus than we do thinking about the Holy Spirit. And that means we need to be careful when we do talk about the Spirit. One writer says, to profess to know a great deal about the Spirit of God is contrary to the nature of the Spirit of God. There is a hiddenness to the Spirit that cannot be uncovered. We need to take that caution on board. It is possible to say too much about the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we can say nothing about the Spirit. We don't have to stay in a complete fog as to who he is and what he does. So we're going to start with two basic truths about the Holy Spirit. And we'll begin to follow the story of the Holy Spirit through the Bible. So two things you and I need to know about the Holy Spirit. First, and this is what you mentioned, Trevor, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's the first line of our church's statement of belief. You can see this displayed in the entrance hall. If you join the church, we give you a copy. There is one God who exists eternally in three distinct but equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's pretty hard to understand. But when you and I read the Bible, it's also pretty hard to deny. The Bible doesn't fully explain the mechanics of how one God exists in three persons. It just tells us that's the way it is. And here are some examples of the Bible telling us that's the way it is. First, from the end of Matthew's Gospel. After Jesus' resurrection, he speaks to his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus puts the Holy Spirit on an equal level with God the Father and God the Son. Then at the end of 2 Corinthians, we find this from the Apostle Paul. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We could look at other examples where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the same breath and given the same status as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God as much as the Father and the Son are God. That's the very first thing you and I need to know about him. Here's the second. The Holy Spirit's work is to lead creation to its destiny. Here's how different writers have put this. 
The Spirit is the one who enables things to become what they were created to be. Again, the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead the creature to its destiny, to cause it to develop according to its nature, to make it perfect. And what is that destiny that the Holy Spirit is bringing creation to? What does it mean to make creation perfect? Sinclair Ferguson explains it like this. From the beginning, the ministry of the Spirit has in view the conforming of all things to God's will and ultimately to his own character and glory. The Holy Spirit's work is to lead creation to its destiny. Now, destiny is that all things be conformed to God's will. That work began long ago, as we'll see, and it will be completed on God's new heaven and earth. Well, where's the evidence for all this? We've had these writers explaining it. What does the Bible say? Well, we'll see, begin to see that in a moment. We'll begin to trace the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. But before we do that, we need to pause and ask ourselves, so what? Why does this matter? It matters because if you and I are interested in the Holy Spirit at all, what we tend to be interested in is, how can I tap into the Holy Spirit? How can I get the Holy Spirit's power to work for me? Maybe, how can I get this particular spiritual gift I'm interested in? How can I get guidance from the Holy Spirit? and answers, and results. But if we begin to understand what the Holy Spirit is about in this world, we'll realize he's not here to do tricks for us. He's here to bring all of creation to perfection. A writer called Francis Chan explains what this means for you and me. He says, the Spirit is not a passive power that we can wield as we choose. The Spirit is God, a being who requires that we submit ourselves to be led by him. The Holy Spirit is really not for our own pleasure or purposes. The Spirit is here with us to accomplish God's purposes, not ours. That understanding is fundamental to getting the Holy Spirit right. If the church kept that in mind, a lot of mess would be avoided in terms of things that are done in the name of the Spirit. So we have the two vital pieces of information that we need. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit's work is to lead creation to its destiny. And now we're going to look at how that plays itself out and shows itself in the story of the Bible. It's the only way to get a right understanding of the work of the Spirit. Put that up on the screen again. That's from a slightly different angle. That's the book cover that I put on the screen a few moments ago. Now if you look closely at that piece of art on the cover... You might be able to see the dove is made up of pages from the Bible. I know it's a little small. And the dove is a biblical symbol of the Holy Spirit. 
But can you pick out, anyone who can see that, what is the only book of the Bible that's visible there? Acts. Right. There it is. And that gives the impression, maybe intentionally by the artist or not, it gives the impression the Holy Spirit's work started in the book of Acts. And certainly the Spirit's work took a major step forward in Acts. But you and I will have a very skewed picture of his work if we only look at the book of Acts. We need to start with the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And we'll look at this in three parts. Creation, Israel, and the future. And then next time we'll follow that story on into the New Testament. So first, the Holy Spirit and creation. Here's how the Bible starts on the very first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The implication of those verses is that creation came before formation. Whatever the precise details were, we're told God created, and what was created was formless and empty. And the verses that follow describe how creation was formed and filled by God. Light was introduced, the waters were separated, creatures were introduced. And before that formation happened, there was the Spirit of God, hovering, poised, great power, ready to act, ready to begin the work of leading creation to its destiny, ready to begin the work that is still going on, the work that will end finally in a new heaven and earth. But we need to be cautious about how much we read into this. The word translated spirit here can also be translated breath or wind. That is the case right through the Bible. And so in some places, translators have to make decisions. Is this really talking about the Holy Spirit? But here in Genesis 1, the point seems to be that the spirit waits ready to carry out the Father's commands. And those commands start in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so on, all through chapter 1, God said, and it was so. It seems to be the Spirit who brings about what the Father decrees. And the Holy Spirit's work there in creation foreshadows something that we'll see in the New Testament. His work in new creation. Bringing to spiritual life men and women who are dead in their transgressions and sins. Well then the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament continues with the people of Israel. A moment ago we read from the book of Genesis. But by chapter 3 of Genesis, 
the relationship between God and his creation has been ruptured. Romans says creation was subjected to frustration. But immediately, God began the work of reclaiming his creation from sin and darkness and death. And the Holy Spirit plays a vital part in that reclamation project, beginning with Israel. God chooses Abraham. He makes massive promises to Abraham, promises that say they will ultimately involve the whole world. And initially, the wheels seem to grind pretty slowly on the fulfillment of those promises. But eventually, Abraham has a son, Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob has many sons, and the family ends up down in Egypt. In Egypt, they grow into a nation, an enslaved nation. But God intervenes, we're told in the book of Exodus. He gives Israel a leader, Moses, and Moses leads them out of Egypt. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with that? Well, long after the Exodus, the prophet Isaiah looked back to it. And he saw the Holy Spirit as central to what went on there. As I hear is speaking about a time when God seems to be absent from his people. It feels that way. But Isaiah remembers the days of Moses and his people. Where is he, Isaiah asks, who brought them through the sea? Where is the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? who sent his glorious arm of power to be Moses, to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them, to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths. The Exodus was a major event in God's plan to move creation towards its destiny. And we're told the Holy Spirit was at the heart of that event. We could say the Holy Spirit was the executive of the exodus from Egypt. Dividing the waters, leading Israel through. And his work didn't end with crossing the Red Sea. We're told the Spirit also taught Israel. Nehemiah says this to God about the exodus generation. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. That instruction came through prophets inspired by the Spirit. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Jews of his day, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet. And then Paul goes on to quote Isaiah. And the point of interest for us is that God's Old Testament people were taught by the Holy Spirit from the mouth of human messengers. They were taught by the Spirit, and Israel's leaders were empowered by the Spirit. In Numbers, we discover that the burden of leadership was becoming too heavy for Moses. And we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Make them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. 
They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. The Holy Spirit empowers the leaders of God's people. Much later, we find a very famous prayer by King David in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. David prays to God, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And the background to that prayer is what had happened to the previous king, Saul. He rebelled against God, and 1 Samuel tells us, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, I don't think that was a comment about Saul's salvation, or lack of salvation. It was talking about the power Saul needed to lead Israel. To lead Israel wisely, for the nation's good and for God's glory. David knew what had happened to Saul. And he knew the job of leadership was too much if the Holy Spirit wasn't with him. And so as part of his repentance, David pleaded with God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 143 is also attributed to David. And there we hear him praying, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So David, it seems, had this constant awareness of his need for the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit was active among Israel's leaders, Israel's prophets, and Israel's kings. Israel was at the heart of God's big project to reclaim his creation. And the Holy Spirit was working to lead that project forward. But what about the ordinary people in Israel? Did the Holy Spirit have anything to do with them? The evidence we have says, yes, he did. And again, he empowered them for service related to God's big project. One example of that is a craftsman called Bezalel. He worked, we're told, on the production of the tabernacle. And this is how Moses describes Bezalel to the Israelites. See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. So we're told Bezalel was a talented man, and the spirit was the source of that. His skill, his intelligence, his knowledge, and his craftsmanship were gifted to him by the Holy Spirit. And that passage goes on to mention other craftsmen who presumably are also gifted by the Spirit for their work. And if we were to take the time to look at the tabernacle in detail, we would learn something there about the Spirit's concerns. He is not just concerned to produce instruction and to equip leaders. The Holy Spirit is concerned with beauty. The tabernacle was not just 
a rough and ready tent. It was a work of incredible craftsmanship. And someone has pointed out, the Spirit's work to bring about the tabernacle shows he is at home with matter, color, texture, and form. We would see the same thing if we looked at the construction of the temple later on. The Holy Spirit was at work in that too, we're told, in First Chronicles. And so the point is, as the Spirit leads creation towards its destiny, his work shows something of the beauty and the attention to detail that are going to characterize our final destiny. The new heaven and earth will not be a drab, unimaginative place. The tabernacle and the temple show us that. They were God's dwelling places in the Old Testament. They were a foretaste, then, of the new heaven and earth. So don't think, as we talk about this, of the Holy Spirit as if he is a drab administrator, just grimly pushing things forward in the world. The Holy Spirit is an artist. He works creatively with concern for beauty in the little details as well as in the big outcomes. And so if you have some of that artistry in you, it is not beside the point when it comes to serving God. The Holy Spirit gave it to you to use in God's service, just like he did with Bezalel. So what have we seen so far about the Spirit's work? It's to move God's great plan forward. We do not find the Spirit doing sideshows in the Old Testament. In other words, we don't find him doing things that are cool, but don't serve any bigger purposes. And that includes what we've just seen, his artistry. All of his work is concerned to lead creation to its God-appointed destiny. And so while the New Testament marks a new stage in the Holy Spirit's work, we shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to work in completely different ways in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will work in continuity with how he has always worked, leading creation to its God-appointed destiny. Then the last point for us to notice today is what the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament tells us about the future. What I mean here is the future from the perspective of the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament tell us about the Holy Spirit's work beyond the Old Testament? We'll just notice two things. First, God promises a leader who will be supremely anointed by the Spirit. There are lots of passages we could look at. Here's one from Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. In other words, we're talking about a descendant of David. Jesse was David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
That tells us that the Spirit's work with Israel's leaders was a foretaste of his work with this future leader. And without spoiling the punchline for next time, how did Jesus Christ begin his public ministry? Luke tells us Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he read from another passage in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. In the Old Testament, God promises a leader who will be supremely anointed by the Spirit. And God promises a people filled with the Spirit. The picture we get in the Old Testament is of men and women who are given the Spirit for particular tasks. But the Old Testament looks forward to a day when all God's people will be indwelt by the Spirit. Again, there are lots of passages we could go to. Here are just two. In the book of Ezekiel, God speaks to the Israelites who are in exile, and he says to them, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That promise in Ezekiel is immediately followed by a vision. Does anyone know the vision that comes straight after that promise? Yes, the valley of dry bones. Human skeletons. Ezekiel has shown them. And as he watches them, we're told breath comes into those bones. Now that's a play on words. Remember the word breath and spirit are the same word in Hebrew. That vision of dry bones coming to life is a picture of God putting his spirit into his people, which he's just promised to do. Making spiritually dead people spiritually alive. That is a work only the Holy Spirit can do. And God promised it in the Old Testament. Now finally, this is God's promise about the future through the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old man will dream dreams. Your young man will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Meaning, those future days. Someone has said, this is a promise that the gift of the spirit will be democratized. In other words, God's people will become not just a people who have some prophets among them. They will become a prophetic people in the world. And again, without spoiling the punchline for another time, the book of Acts records that on the day of Pentecost, when all the apostles were together, were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up and he quoted these verses from Joel. 
But if we go back to the Old Testament, why did God make these promises? To send a leader who would be supremely anointed by the Spirit and to bring into being a people filled with the Spirit. He promised those things as a crucial step towards creation's final destiny. The day when it is finally liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Romans chapter 8 says, The work of the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament is the first fruits of that freedom and glory. It's a down payment and a foretaste of what's to come. Well, what's the value of all this? Working our way through the Old Testament. How does this help us think today about the Holy Spirit? Looking at the story of the Spirit in the Old Testament gives us a sense of what the Spirit is about. We can expect him to be about the same thing today, leading creation to its destiny. And so I'm going to end with some words that we heard earlier. If you take just one thing away from today, if you've glazed over already, just come back for this last point. Here it is. The Spirit is not a passive power that we can wield as we choose. The Spirit is God, a being who requires that we submit ourselves to be led by him. The Holy Spirit is really not for our own pleasure or purposes. The Spirit is here with us to accomplish God's purposes, not ours. If you and I keep that in mind, it will give us the right attitude to the Holy Spirit. And it will stand us in good stead for next time when we look at his work in the New Testament. That's all I have prepared to say. I don't know if that raises any questions. If you have any comments to make. Thank you. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as the man of God. Yeah, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where it speaks about the angel of the Lord and sometimes it's, it, it's not completely clear. Is it talking about an angel who's representing the Lord? Is it talking about the Lord himself? Is, is that the kind of thing that you mean? Yeah. My, my way of, I think, the way I would read those passages, it, it seems like it's an angel who comes with God's authority to deliver his message with the full authority of God. So I would see the Holy Spirit as being different because it seems to be referred to differently. That seems, some people would disagree with that. But it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there are places where people come and do things and assist and intervene. It seems like they are to be understood as angels. Uh, so I would, I would take the Holy Spirit a bit differently, but we, it isn't completely clear. So I wouldn't want to be really dogmatic about it. But 
I think that often the references to the Holy Spirit are much more about what he does as opposed to any kind of form that he might have. That's interesting. Um, is it on? Is it on? It's interesting that Elisha and Elijah, as well as Moses and everybody, um, had a sort of down payment of miracles that Jesus would later perform. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly, um, like we mentioned, the Holy Spirit coming to assist people in great works that God gives them to do, yeah. You said at the beginning that there's a hiddenness of the Holy Spirit that cannot be uncovered. Is it yeah. possible to expand on that, please? Yeah. The only reason I put that up there was just as a caution, because I think when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, we can, we can take the approach that we want to categorize and nail everything down that the Spirit does. But I think there is in Scripture... We're given details about the Spirit and what he does, but there is a bit of a mystery to the way he works. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, think about the wind. It blows, you, you see what it does, but you don't always know exactly how it's doing it. And then Jesus says that that's the way the Spirit works. So I think picking up on the comment from Jesus, just a caution that we don't become speak as if we, we've completely understood the Holy Spirit. I think that's what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Not to say that he is a, a mysterious force. Clearly not. He's described as a person. But it is different from Jesus because we can picture Jesus. We read the Gospels and we see him drinking, eating, sleeping. How do you think about the Holy Spirit? I mean, how do we visualize them in our heads? I think that's all I'm trying to get at. Not to make it a, a real um, mysterious thing, but just to be a bit cautious about Does that help at all? Yes, I think so, yes. yes. I think when I personally think about the Holy Spirit, and I can see in my mind, Yeah. Yeah, so that in itself shows there is a bit of mystery to it. Yeah. Is it okay if I just read a portion of scripture, Tim? Yeah, yeah. To, to just ask my question. Yeah. It's when um, the woman of Samaria, when the Lord was talking to the woman of Samaria, he said, he said, ye worship, you know not what, what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the outcome of now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So if, if Christ was referring to the Father as spirit, and when we're told in, um, in Scripture, it says that Christ, who being in the form of God, counted it not robbery to be equal with God, so when it says that in the form of God, isn't that saying that Christ dwelt as a spirit before his incarnation? Yes, yeah, certainly God the Father 
doesn't have a body. He's a, a spiritual being. Yeah, and, well, isn't, and isn't that saying? Isn't that saying then that Christ, who was in the same form, spirit? So, if the whole of the Godhead prior to Christ being incarnated as a man dwelt as a dwelt as spirit, each each person, the three persons, it, it seems strange then to to view the Holy Spirit as in a lesser role when the whole of the Godhead prior to Christ's incarnation dwelt in spirit form. Yeah, and, and my question would be, how do, how do you mean when you say a lesser role? Um, as you say, the forgotten God. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it, it comes back to this, just this difficulty we have with thinking about the Spirit. And there is also the element, just when you say a lesser role, we, we hear about the Holy Spirit doing the Father's commands and we think well does that mean but then we read John's gospel and we hear Jesus saying I always do what pleases my father so the spirit and the son in some sense carry out the father's will and yet we we understand from scripture they are all equally God but we don't hear the father always does the spirit's will or the father always does the son's will so in the things that they do, the Spirit and the Son are carrying out the Father's will. Did you want to add anything else to that? Um, it, it was just just that, as you said, that, it, that he is, as, as you put it at the start, the, the forgotten God. Yeah. And why should it be the case if all of them prior to, to Galilee and Nazareth, when the, and Gabriel was sent, why should that be the case? Yeah. And of course we could turn it around in a different setting than this one and we could say in some places the Holy Spirit has not been forgotten. It's a lot of other things that have been forgotten because the main emphasis can shift to being on the Holy Spirit. And I think what we'll see next time is his role is to point us to Jesus and his work. And so if for us the reminder is not to forget him, maybe in another situation, the challenge would be not to focus exclusively on the Spirit. That quote from Jim Packer, um, I noticed he said there'd be no faith and no Christianity and another, was it two things? But he didn't say, mention, uh, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, um, though you mentioned, you, you touched on it, of course, that there would be no prophecy. Prophecy came in the Old Testament as uh, the Holy Spirit uh, carried men along, at least true prophecy. There, was, yeah. there were false prophets, of course. Yeah. So, um, Yes, as you pointed out, the Holy Spirit has been active from the beginning of creation or before. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Oh, just one other thing. Uh, did, in the Old Testament, uh, did God appear in a physical form to a patriarch? And was this the Lord Jesus? <laughs> in, in ten seconds or less? Well, like I said earlier, some people believe, they, they look at places in the Old Testament where an angel appeared, say, for example, the angel who wrestled with 
Jacob and they, they think because of the wording that it was that Jesus. But I, I think we need a lot more evidence to, to decide, yes, that was Jesus. I mean, why would we think that? It's, it's not described as him. And so I think we're, we're on safer ground to say when Jesus came, God made absolutely sure it was announced clearly and with a fanfare. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Jesus was um, coming kind of incognito before that. So I would, again, I would take that to be an angel with the full authority of God and therefore sometimes referred to almost as if he is God. Yeah, I mean, that, like I said, some people would disagree with me on that, but, and you have in Daniel where there's um, the, the three friends are in the fire and the king looks in and he says, I see an extra man in there. Again, I would see that as God sending his messenger with all his authority to comfort and preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I would just add, if someone says that's Jesus, I'd want to know, well, why would we think that? There's no real indication that would seem to tell us that. But, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall out with anyone over it. In regard, in regard to that, it, it, in the, the prophecy in, in Micah, which speaks about Bethlehem Ephrathah, about the out of, out of that place that, that, would, that the Christ would come, it goes on to say, whose goings forth have been of old. So do you think that could be something that points to Christ's the, the theophanies in the Old Testament? It's possible, although I would think that what that is saying is he has, he's been on his way since Adam and Eve sinned and God made that promise that he was going to send someone immediately after the sin. That's, that's how I would understand that he's, he's been on his way since that happened to save us. Again, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, want to get into a heated argument about it because I, I, my only point is I think we just need a lot more evidence before we'd be really strong on, on those questions. One more over here, Nathan. When God created Adam, he made him out of the dust of the earth and he breathed the breath of life or the spirit of life into him and thus he became a living being. Would you take that as the Holy Spirit being given to Adam or just he had a, he had a breath? Yeah, I think in that case, because it's qualified by the, uh, the breath of life, I, th- I think because those extra words are there, that it's saying he, he invigorated a dead body to life. And, and then, I mean, you can't connect that to the thing in Ezekiel where God's promising, I'm going to do that again to be giving new life. So there's a link in a way, but I don't think it's saying he breathed the Holy Spirit into him. I mean, did you want to... I wanted to link it to another thought of that. 
there may have been other, uh, other humans on earth back then. And only in Adam, he breathed the Holy Spirit as a force to life, real life. But that's a bit mm -hmm. often. Yeah, that, that's reading a, a very substantial amount into what Genesis gives us, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's supposing a whole load of gaps that, that are not being commented on, whereas purely at face value would seem to be leading us to understand there was a first uh, couple and they didn't have other people around. That, I mean, that's just what I would say about that. It, it involves a massive amount of plugging other things in to the gaps around it. We could we could talk about that afterwards, maybe. Yeah, the thing is also um, that um, when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, even though they've been breathed into giving life, um, and I'm inclined to agree with you, they were also. Um, 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 it was also mentioned in the scriptures earlier, later on that they were dead in the sins and that we are dead in sins because we've sinned um, and we've imputed sin from Adam. Yeah. So if we're dead in sins we can't, and not spiritually alive then we can't have the Holy Spirit within us. Yeah. If I'm yeah. right, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. One one more question. Then. It's not really a question. It's just in regard to what was said about Adam when God breathed life into Adam, because the Scripture says that God gives life and breath and spirit to all who dwells upon the earth. So if, yeah. if that can be drawn from what God did with Adam, then surely it could be done with everybody on, on in creation. But that yeah. isn't so. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Was there any, any last, anything last specifically about the Holy Spirit or connected to the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, we will come back to this and obviously things get a lot more fuller and um, filled out in the New Testament, but we'll pray and you can ask me... Uh, if you want to carry anything on afterwards, but we'll pray and then we can eat. Father, we realize that without your initiative, we couldn't know you. And so we thank you that you have taken the initiative in many ways to make yourself known to us. And we understand from the Bible that the Holy Spirit is one of those ways that you make yourself known to us through inspiring your word that we use as our main way to learn about you. And so we thank you for all you have done. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in the past and in the present. And um, we thank you that he continues to work every day. We thank you for our fellowship together. Uh, we are told that we're given unity in Christ uh, by the Spirit, and so we thank you for that unity we have, and we pray that you will uh, bless our time together, and we thank you for the food that we can enjoy together. Amen.